Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the MLK Tapes, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, or their employees. Listener discretion is advised. He looked like he had stuck his finger in the socket. Lord Harris was standing up. And he looked like somebody had drained all the blood out of his body. He was so white. Oh, he was so white. He had been on his knees. How do you know he'd been on his knees? I know he had been on his knees because the ground was damp. Because what? The ground was damp and his his knees were dirty. And when he came in there and went behind the counter and uh, put that gun on the counter, it was a brand new, pretty rifle. The barrel of it was black. But it was shining like it had been waxed. The handle was dark brown. He had this black thing on top of it. This is Betty Spates telling attorney William Pepper that just moments after Martin Luther King was shot, she saw a man she knew come running in the back door with a smoking rifle. Betty was working as a waitress at Jim's Grill on South Main Street, the back door to which opened onto a brush-covered yard directly opposite the room at the Lorraine Motel where Dr. King was staying. The grill was owned by Lloyd Jowers, and he and Betty had an ongoing sexual relationship. Lloyd was white, Betty was black, and she was 17. I called the union hall. I said, it's a matter of life and death. I said, I think these people are planning to kill Dr. King. The authorities were parade, oh, we found a gun that James Earl Ray bought in Birmingham that killed Dr. King. Except it wasn't the gun that killed Dr. King. James Earl Ray was a pawn for the official story. From iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The plan was to get King to the city because they wanted it handled in Memphis where Daddy and them could handle it. And I have lived with it so long, my children, and they they scared for me. The Lord told me to not to worry. I've been wanting to tell it all my life. I'm Bill Kleber, and this is The MLK Tapes. At the time of this conversation with Betty Spades, Bill Pepper had been working on the King murder for over a decade, but he had been representing James Earl Ray as his attorney for just a few years, and that only after he had satisfied himself that Ray's involvement was not voluntary. Although the official version of the crime had the fatal shot coming from the bathroom window above Jim's grill, there were people who thought the shot had come from the yard below the bathroom. The best access to this yard was by way of the back door of the grill, And of course, nothing could have happened through that door without the cooperation of the grill's owner, Lloyd Jowers. So he was always on Bill Pepper's suspect list. 
Jowers was in the frame right from the beginning because he was the one who ran Jim's Grill. He, he owned it and, and he ran it. And he clearly had some role to play, which, which eventually started to become defined by Betty Spates when I eventually was able to get her to talk. What brought you to Betty Spates? I guess it's local people said that Jowers' girlfriend was, was Betty Spates and she worked part-time for him and her sister worked also in the grill. And so I, I started talking to them. Betty was not willing to disclose anything uh, that was going to incriminate Lloyd for quite a long period of time because she actually thought Lloyd was the, the shooter who did the shooting because she saw him carrying the rifle, smoking rifle, into, into the kitchen. Lloyd kept her under wraps to the extent that he could. Lloyd Jowers had grown up in rural Dyersburg, Tennessee, and after his discharge from the Navy, he came to Memphis in 1946, newly married to his first wife, Dorothy. With no training at all, he got a job as a Memphis police officer. This was back in the day when Edwin Hull Crump, better known as Boss Crump, ran most everything in and around Memphis. Here's what Jowers said at the 1999 civil trial. The audio quality is so poor, we've taken the liberty of using a voice actor. Crump is the one who got me the job. I went in to see him on a Monday, and on Thursday I was riding in a squad car with the 38 hanging on my side. That's just the way things operated back then. Now, Johnny Barger was my partner. He's the one who introduced me to Frank Liberto. They were real good friends. Of course, I gotta be pretty good friends with Frank myself because he could do you a lot of good in Memphis, especially if you're with police. Policemen were often seen stopping by Frank Liberto's produce market, but they were rarely seen coming out with lettuce or tomatoes. Word was the cops would do favors for Frank and his friends and he would make sure there was something in it for them. In those days, getting a job as a cop was easy enough if you were white, but the pay was bad. So after a few years, Jowers quit the police and began working for a local cab company. Around the same time, Jowers also quit his marriage with Dorothy and soon married another woman. That marriage also ended in divorce, and a short while after that, he married his first wife, Dorothy, for a second time. In 1967, Jowers bought Jim's Grill, and he hired two sisters, Bobby and Betty, to cook and serve as waitresses. For decades, Jowers had said that the afternoon King was shot, he was working the tables by himself, and that Betty Spates was not there. When the actual noise went off, I was drawing a, a beer, a picture of beer. That's not just all. I had it about half drawn, and the noise went off, and I quit. I went back to the kitchen door. It yes. sounded like a noise in the kitchen, so yeah. I went and checked it. Mm -hmm. so I looked inside the kitchen, there was nothing there, so I went on back to finish drawing my beer. Jowers told this, his standard story, to Bill Pepper as part of an extensive legal deposition he was required to give in 1994. In the 1990s, things regarding the murder of Martin Luther King were playing out in different venues. On TV, in the office of the Attorney General, with the Shelby County Grand Jury, and eventually in the state's court system. The trigger for all this was the 1993 mock trial, televised on HBO, which brought together lawyers, a real judge, and an impartial jury, which, after hearing evidence from both sides, found James Earl Ray not guilty of murdering Martin Luther King. Lloyd Jowers testified at this trial, but he didn't say much beyond what you just heard. Pepper started to ask Jowers if he had played any role in the murder of King, but the judge scolded him and disallowed the question. I had a number of altercations with Judge Frankel, who was, a, was known as a fairly conservative United States District Court judge when he was on the court. He started off with a degree of skepticism that waned as we went on with the trial. I think he began to accept that uh, there was an actual case being made before him 
that he didn't have any idea about. Pepper had good reason to ask Jowers about his involvement because Betty Spates had recently confessed to him that she had seen Jowers with a smoking gun. After trying for two or three years, I eventually got her to tell me what had happened that afternoon with respect to Lloyd Jowers. Looking for him, thinking he was playing around with some women out in the bushes, and she going into the grill, seeing the kitchen door closed, which was unusual, but then seeing the back door open, which also was unusual. So she went to the back door, and on her way there, she heard the shot. And as she got to the back door, already, here comes Lloyd running in with a rifle, still smoking, and him as white as a sheep. And he brushes past her, starts to break down the rifle, and said to her, you would never do anything to hurt me, Betty, would you? She said, no, of course not. Then he wrapped it in the rifle, put it on a shelf, where eventually he showed it to McGraw, his friend and local taxi driver. Betty Spates was scheduled to testify at the mock trial, but she became frightened and didn't show. But Jowers may have heard that she had been called, and perhaps this unnerved him. For when he was under oath at his deposition in 1994, he lied about the simplest things. Was he aware, Bill Pepper asked, that Dr. King was coming to town? No, he hadn't heard a thing about that. Did he have any contact with a guy named Frank Liberto? No, none at all. Had Betty Spates worked at the grill that day? No, not that day. Had he had a romantic relationship with Betty Spates? No, he hadn't. Pepper patiently plodded through his questions without challenging Jowers' most obvious lies. None of it made any sense. Why would Jowers, under oath, revert to his former see-no-evil-hear-no-evil approach to the killing of King, when just months before, he'd been on national TV on ABC primetime with Sam Donaldson, where he had confessed to having played a role in this very murder. Did James Earl Ray kill Dr. Martin Luther King? No, he did not. Do you know who killed Dr. King? I know who was paid to do it. From the outside, it is difficult to understand Jower's motivation for going on national TV and confessing to some part in the murder of Dr. King. But knowing that Betty Spate's testimony was loose in the world may have made Jowers worry about being prosecuted for his part in the crime. Or perhaps something else did. Looking for relief, Jowers' attorney, Louis Garrison, approached the Attorney General, John Parati. He asked for immunity from prosecution for Jowers in exchange for coming forward with what he knew about the crime. That kind of deal is common in criminal cases. What Jowers and Garrison had perhaps overlooked was that in this case, the authorities, the police and the AG's office, were heavily invested in the lone assassin version of the King murder. At the time of Ray's conviction, the AG's office loudly proclaimed that if any information surfaced that indicated others were involved, they would take vigorous action and chase those guilty parties to the ends of the earth. But now that that information had arrived, they didn't want to act on it. Rather, the investigators tried to get witnesses to change their stories or discredit them altogether. So Garrison's attempts to negotiate immunity hit a wall, and Jowers' consent to come out on ABC primetime might be seen as an attempt to force the AG's hand. Indeed, when Donaldson asked Jowers on live TV to name the actual shooter, Garrison jumped in and said that Jowers would do that as soon as he was granted immunity. But why would Garrison allow his client to go public with such a confession? I asked Bill Pepper if he knew whether Garrison had recommended that Jowers go on TV. I don't think he opposed it. I think Lewis knew that his client was guilty, and he believed this was a horrendous crime and that the truth should be out. And whilst he was trying to protect the interests of his client to the extent that he could, he nevertheless uh, did not want to get in the way of uh, the unfolding truth. And what did Garrison have to say about it? This audio comes from a 2012 interview of Garrison by court reporter Brian Dominski. 
Well, they had contacted me about that. I didn't know whether Mr. Jones wanted to do it or not. It didn't matter to me. We weren't paying anything. But at any rate, uh, he told me one day, you know, he said, well, for the sake of history, if it'll help, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do it. And Mr. Johnson came and talked to us once or twice before we had the, you know, where we actually filmed everybody. So I think, I mean, I didn't lead Lloyd into this thing. He, he agreed to it. And uh-huh. the only thing I wanted, you know, I didn't want to see him get indicted or anything like that. So Jowers had been on TV saying he had been involved in the murder. But now, with Pepper asking him questions while under oath, Jowers wanted to go back to the story that he was just drawing a pitcher of beer when King was killed. After having let the charade go on for over an hour, Bill Pepper handed Jowers a transcript of what he had said to Sam Donaldson and asked him to look at the first page. Donaldson saying asking you a question right on that first paragraph there. He is saying, did James Earl Ray kill Martin Luther King? Do you see your answer to that question as it appears in the transcript? What was your response to that question, Mr. Donaldson asked you? No. Then he said, do you know who killed Martin Luther King? And the answer? The answer Jowers gave to Donaldson was, I know who was paid to do it. These were important words for Bill Pepper because his client, James Earl Ray, had been in jail for over 25 years for a murder he said he didn't commit. And now here was testimony from someone with presumed inside knowledge who was saying that James Earl Ray had not in fact been the killer of Martin Luther King. Pepper was trying to reopen the case in the courts, and here was the can opener that might do the job. But Lloyd Jowers didn't like this new turn in the questions. Mr. Pepper, I think I'd better take the fifth amendment. You want me to read it to you? Yes. So Jowers pled the fifth. He refused to answer Pepper's question by asserting his right to not incriminate himself. Pepper kept on and asked Jowers if he had any business dealings with Frank Liberto. I'd like to take the fifth amendment on the three of the three you No, you don't. You don't know. Um, have you... Um, ever set your eyes upon a man who has come to be known as, to many of us, as Raoul? I have to plead the fifth amendment on that question. Have you ever had in your possession any weapon that might have been associated with the murder of Martin Luther King? Except I have to plead the fifth amendment on that question. And so it went. A few more questions that Jowers wouldn't answer, and Pepper said he was finished. But Jowers' awkward confession, and then his taking the fifth, would be enough for Pepper to get his motion for an evidentiary hearing before a sympathetic judge. We will follow that story in another episode. But what happened to Betty Spates and her story of seeing Jowers running back into Jim's grill, rifle in hand? Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, You can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare.
Betty Spates didn't work the afternoon shift at Jim's Grill. She worked the morning and the evening shifts, and in between she'd go across the street and work her second job at Seabrook Wallpaper. Years later, she told Bill Pepper that on the day Martin Luther King was killed, Seabrook let out early, so she returned to the grill around 3.30, just in time to run into Jower's wife, Dorothy, who didn't much care for Betty Spates. What happened when she came in? <laughs> she called me a slut. <laughs> she came right up to you and just she called you a name? She called me a slut. And I thought it was a compliment. And then she turned around and told Lord, I want her out of And Lord told me to get behind the camera. Right. And he told her, and no, she's not leaving, you are. You get out of here and get out now. She didn't talk back to him or nothing. She didn't say anything. She just left. Yeah. A short time after her run-in with Jower's wife, Betty Spates recalled seeing Charlie Stevens put out of the grill. So drunk, he was becoming a danger to himself. This was the same Charlie Stevens who would become the state's star witness, saying he saw James Earl Ray run from the bathroom on the second floor of the rooming house after the shot was fired. Betty didn't think much of that story. Oh, drunk man, seen nothing. Right. When did when was he put out of the grill? After Laura's wife left, he had been put out, you know, about three times before then, but he was staggered by him. Yeah. Who would put him out? Bobby. Well, Bobby told him to leave. Yeah. Mm. Bobby was the big bouncer. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby was the bouncer. <laughs> so it was a busy afternoon in the grill for Lloyd Jowers. And the little scene between Betty and Dorothy had played out just an hour and a half before Dr. King was to be murdered. And there were still things that needed doing. Betty said that Jowers disappeared on a handful of short errands that didn't make much sense. Out the door, back in ten minutes. Out the door and back in five. And then, near six o'clock, she noticed Jowers was again not in the dining room, and she hadn't seen him leave. So she went into the kitchen, and Jowers wasn't there either but the back door was open. Then she heard a popping noise, and Jowers came running through the back door, white as a sheet, and carrying a gun. And over the next 30 years, that image would follow her like a ghost. And what about Lloyd Jowers? What was life like for him in the years following King's murder? According to Jowers' attorney, Lewis Garrison, it wasn't too bad, because Jowers had come into some heavy money right after the murder of Dr. King. He purchased a cab company sometime, I don't know, 68 or 69. But at any rate, it's the second largest cab company in Memphis that time. It had over 100 cars. And he probably had 15 cents in his pocket when Dr. King was assassinated until he got this money. But I mean, I, I mean, I can't tell you what he told me personally, but I know for sure it was $100,000. $100,000. I verified with other witnesses besides Mr. Yar. According to Jowers, he closed down Jim's Grill in July of 1971. The neighborhood was changing. And for some reason, the cops and cab drivers who had been his regulars no longer felt like sitting around the old place. Sometime before he closed the grill, Jowers bought what he told Bill Pepper was 40% of Southland Cab Company. It was as an owner of Southland that Jowers would meet attorney Lewis Garrison, first on opposing sides of an injury lawsuit. But Jowers liked Garrison's relaxed style, so Garrison became Jowers' attorney for the odd things that befall anyone in life, like a divorce. Jowers divorced his wife, Dorothy, for the second time in 1975, and in 1976, he married Donna Turner. But Turner divorced Jowers before their second anniversary, so Jowers, unfazed, turned around the same year and married Dorothy for the third time. All the while, Lloyd Jowers and Betty Spates kept up an occasional relationship that would go on for 20 years. Betty gave birth to five children, two of which she said were fathered by Jowers. As she told Bill Pepper, all through the 70s and into the 80s, Jowers kept tabs on her. He came right. to my house about three times later. Right. Okay. Lord called me like we was buddy buddies. Oh, once a week. About once a week. Oh, he was calling once yeah. a week. And whenever you changed jobs, he went to see you? Whenever I change job, it's like someone, someone was watching me. I wouldn't be there a month before he knew where I was. She said 
I wouldn't be there a month, and suddenly he was there. Of course, Jowers knew what Betty had seen the day King was killed, and this may have caused him some anxiety, and at times he apparently felt the need to push some of it in her direction, and he didn't always do it himself. Jowers had a friend named Willie Aikens who would sometimes come by Betty's house. On one particular visit, Aikens pulled a gun and fired three bullets into the couch on which she was sitting. He knocked on my back door, came in my house, pulled up a 357 Magnum, and shot three times in my couch. And I was sitting right there. I didn't jump. I didn't cry. I didn't move. I had worked a 16-hour shift. I probably was asleep. Sometimes the lessons would be in the form of a story, like the one about Aikens and Jowers murdering the wife of some doctor who gave them money to do it. And when Aikens told me there was a doctor, I had a wife and paid Loa to get rid of her. And him and Loa killed this woman on state line road and buried her. She owned a pink Cadillac. And they asked me, don't you remember reading it in the paper? And that stuck in my head because it's so unusual. Yeah. As the years passed, the games to frighten Betty died away, but Jowers still kept contact. I, I never bothered Lord. I always stayed away from Lord. I knew he knew where I was, and if he wanted me, I knew he was sent for me. Wherever he sent for me, I always went where he was. It's not that I loved the Lord, but it's not that I was afraid of the Lord. I guess I was just a fool. But I figured that whenever he sent for me, if I was always there, he wouldn't hurt me. Mm. And that's why I did it. But I'm too old to do it anymore. Over the years, attorney Lewis Garrison and Lloyd Jowers kept on with their business relationship. But people would sometimes say strange things to Garrison about Jowers. Allusions to some secret that everyone else seemed to know about. Or sometimes they might just say it. They might right out ask if Garrison knew that Jowers was in on the murder of Dr. King. What a strange thing to say, unless there was some truth to it. Finally, Garrison summoned his courage. So one day I, I said, Lord, I said, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the fact you may have been involved in the Martin Luther King assassination. And he said, well, a lot of people talk about it. He said, there's one thing, sure, that blank to black's not coming back. I said, no, he's not coming back. But that's, that's when we first started, the very first time we probably talked about it very much. Lewis Garrison is a Southern gentleman, and blankety-blank is as close as he will come to saying the words that Jowers actually said. But they probably weren't nice words. And Garrison understood right away that Jowers had not denied the rumors. Garrison and Jowers talked further on subsequent occasions, and soon Garrison was not the attorney defending his client in cab-related lawsuits. He was the attorney representing a man who had admitted to him that he was involved in the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King. The appearance with Sam Donaldson on national TV may have been an attempt to force the DA's hand as far as granting immunity to Jowers, but there may have been something else in play. Bill Pepper had worked with an English TV producer named Jack Saltman on the HBO mock trial. When the trial ended with a surprise not guilty verdict in Ray's favor, Saltman apparently imagined a movie about the assassination that would reveal what really happened. Without telling Pepper a thing about it, he took on Pepper's former investigators, Ken Herman and John Billings, and they began to put the pieces together. I think it got launched um, very early on after the HBO trial. I think they saw an opportunity to make some serious money. Herman had been um, an investigator on the case, as was Billings, and they got sucked into this uh, arrangement with, with Saltman, who was a producer from England, of course. And uh, they thought they could put together a, a script and uh, launch a private project and make money on it. But Chowers was the key player, so he was brought in. But for there to be a movie, they needed to know who shot King. And Chowers, now seeing dollar signs, was happy to say that it was a guy named Frank Holt, a big black fellow that Chowers knew way back when, but no one had seen him for years. So Jowers' confession on ABC primetime may have been not only a play 
to pry an immunity deal out of A.G. Perotti, but also perhaps a play to get a major studio interested in doing a movie. But to get a movie studio involved, they needed to flesh out the story, and they wanted Betty Spates to help. She would say that she listened in on Jowers' phone conversation where some produce guy named Liberto told Jowers about money that was to arrive in a box of lettuce. And Jowers now wanted Betty to tell her story about what she saw at the back door. Except she would say that she saw a man hand Jowers the gun. A large black man. He told me, I want you to always be noticing. And whenever I get on the phone, I want you to listen and I want you to eat up and hear Frank Liberto telling me when my produce come in today, there will be an extra order. And when the produce came in, I was supposed to have been nose enough to open a box that I thought was a box of lettuce, but it was a box filled with money. But it's not any of that's true. None of that is true. Not any of that is true. I don't know anything about a phone call. I don't know anything about no lettuce or no money in no box. And I never heard of Frank Liberto before. That's what Lord wanted me to say. He wanted me to tell the truth about seeing him with the rifle. He just wanted me to change it just a little bit by saying, I saw him standing in the back door and a black man passing him a rifle. And that's not true. And he said, if I didn't say it, I would lose my share of $300,000 plus royalties to a book. And I told him I can't lose nothing I never had. So Lloyd Jowers was saying that a black man named Frank Holt, whom he had hired, had handed him the rifle that day while he was at the back door of his restaurant. Perhaps Saltman and Herman believed this story. But when Bill Pepper found out about the whole movie intrigue and that the fall guy was to be this Frank Holt, he jumped on it. Well, I thought it was important to find him and to interview him, and I hired a private investigator in Florida to locate him, because I understood that's where he was where he was. We found him. Pepper flew down to Orlando and met with a penniless Frank Holt, who had been living in a series of homeless shelters. Holt was surprised to hear that Jowers was now accusing him of murdering Martin Luther King. It was apparent to Pepper, after asking three questions, that Holt didn't know a thing about it. Why would Jowers name you, he asked Holt. I don't know, the man replied. Maybe he thought I was dead. And that made sense to Pepper, because to him, Frank Holt alive did not make a very convincing killer. So with Betty Spates ready to say that the story wasn't true, and Holt turning up alive, the movie idea died a quiet death. But it had done damage. Anytime someone looks into the murders of the Kennedys or King, the charge is almost always levied that they are just doing it for a quick buck. It's an easy way to dismiss an honest effort to look at the evidence. But now, here was someone actually trying to make money by telling a story about the murder of King. It became the easy way to dismiss Bill Pepper and Jowers and the substantial evidence that the assassination was run out of his grill. They were all just trying to make a movie. As for Betty Spates, she would endure a great deal of harassment. In the beginning, Jack Saltman and a few others showed up at her door. Then they appeared at the restaurant where she worked. They wanted her in on the story. So did Willie Akins, who was angry that she was going to cost them all a lot of money if she didn't follow their script. And ABC host Sam Donaldson himself showed up in the company of Aikens, who that day presumably left this 357 Magnum at home. When Betty told Pepper that Donaldson had come to her house, he was surprised. Did Donaldson come over there? Yes, he did. And uh, I could hear him on the porch, and he was telling, and Willie Aikens was beating on the window and the doors, and he was telling, if this lady don't want to talk, I don't want to bother her. Those were nice sentiments spoken by Donaldson. But it didn't keep ABC primetime from turning Betty's life upside down when they did their special on Lloyd Jowers and his confession. Because right in the middle of things, they showed a blurry video of Betty leaving work and getting into her car like she was part of some drug deal. 
And while that was playing, they said that Betty could confirm the story told by Jowers. Now, lots of people wanted to talk to Betty. Journalists, people posing as journalists, guys in suits flashing ID. Betty didn't want to talk to any of them. Sometimes she hid and pretended she wasn't home. As for Jowers, things weren't great for him either. With the movie deal dying and the attorney general not offering immunity, he felt more exposed than ever. And now the King family had questions. They wanted to speak to him. And when the possibility of a meeting was proposed, Jowers said he was willing. He apparently hoped that he might find some shelter in a meeting with the King family. So one was arranged in a room at a motel out on the highway. At the meeting was Lloyd Jowers and his attorney, Lewis Garrison, Martin King's son, Dexter, and Ambassador Andrew Young. They also brought a tape recorder. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When Martin Luther King was shot on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel, King's lieutenant and confidant, Andrew Young, was standing below in the parking lot. Young heard a popping noise and then suddenly realized that King was down. After King's death, Young stayed on for a time with the SCLC. Then he entered politics and served two terms in Congress. In 1977, he was made ambassador to the United Nations by President Carter. And following that, he won two consecutive terms as mayor of Atlanta. Three decades after King's death, Andrew Young would return to Memphis and take the witness stand in the 1999 civil trial. Under the questioning of Bill Pepper, attorney for Coretta Scott King, Young explained that his energies after King's murder were directed toward carrying forward with King's work rather than answering the questions that still lingered about his death. But eventually, that changed. Ambassador Young, did you in recent years come to consider uh, the events of April 4th, the assassination of your friend and colleague uh, again? I did. Ambassador, as a result of um, the family's new awareness and concern, were you asked to participate in a meeting with an individual who, who is a defendant here, Mr. Lloyd Jarvis? Yes, I was. I was told that, uh, that Mr. Jowers was getting older, he wasn't very well, and it was almost <coughs> like he wanted to get right with God before he died. But when we met with him, that was still the impression that I had, that he was a man who had a lot on his mind, and a lot on his conscience, and who, who wanted to confess it and be free of it. Could you, in the time remaining, summarize for us what Mr. Jarrows told you and Dexter King at that meeting? Well, he said that he was the proprietor of Jim's Grill and that uh, he was a retired Memphis police officer and that a lot of police officers hung out uh, at his place. He said he hadn't lived a, such a good life. He had a lot of 
drinking and gambling problems, and that he was in debt to somebody that he identified as the head of the mafia who called him up and that he was nervous about him and afraid that he was calling to collect the money which he didn't have. The guy said, no, forget about that. I just need you to do me a favor. So what was the favor? The mafia guy to whom Jowers owed a large debt, Frank Liberto, who we've spoken about before, wanted Jowers' grill for use as the staging ground for the murder of Martin Luther King. It was the perfect place if King were staying at the Lorraine Motel. But when Jowers met with King's son, Dexter, he wasn't quite ready to let it all hang out. So he told a more limited, but rather unbelievable story to Dexter King and Andy Young. In this telling, Jowers did not know Martin Luther King was to be murdered. All Jowers knew was that he was supposed to receive a large amount of money hidden in a box, supposedly containing vegetables, and that he was supposed to hand this money over to a Spanish-looking guy named Raul, who would bring Jowers a package. Jowers claimed the man brought the package, which was a long box that presumably contained a rifle, but Jowers told Dexter King and Andy Young that he never looked in the box. But he did give this Raul guy the money. Then, crazy day that this was, Jowers said he got a phone call telling him to be at the back door of his grill at 6 o'clock. Someone would give him something. He didn't know what. Ambassador Young tells what happened next, according to Jowers. But he said when he went to the back door, just as he got to the door, a shot rang out. And somebody came out of the bushes and handed him a smoking rifle. And he broke it down and wrapped it in a, a tablecloth and put it back in the store. He said the guy who handed him the rifle was a fellow who had been on the Memphis police force with him. That was a friend of his who um, he used to go hunting with and was quite a good marksman. Bill Pepper asked the court for permission to play the recording of the meeting between Ambassador Young, Dexter King, and Lloyd Jowers. The judge agreed, and the jury then heard the entire tape of that meeting, selections from which we will play for you here. It should be noted that this was the second such meeting the first included Jowers, Garrison, King, and Bill Pepper. So there is a more relaxed informality here than one might expect for a meeting where one man confesses to killing the other man's father. And while the evidence strongly suggests that the basic underlying story here is true, many, if not most, of the pieces of this story as told by Jowers are not true. And we will try to point these out as they occur. As we heard Attorney Garrison say before, Jowers did not speak well of King in private company. But now, in meeting with Dexter King, Jowers wanted not only forgiveness from the King family, but their support in his bid for immunity from prosecution in return for his coming forward. The King family on their side was grateful to finally hear, after 30 years, some version of the truth from someone inside the conspiracy. Because of this, they were not inclined to challenge Jowers or make things difficult for him when he made absurd claims, such as he did not know it was Martin Luther King who was to be murdered. It's an odd trade-off. Also, after the civil trial, the original tape of this meeting appears to have been lost. So what we have now is what was made when the original tape was played and re-recorded in open court with all its distortion and background noise. So instead of playing the courtroom recording, we're going to recreate the exchange between Dexter and Jowers, heard on that tape, with voice actors. We appreciate your willingness to open up and come forward. As you know, we continue to support immunity for you, but the district attorney doesn't seem to want your story to come out. So it appears that they are shutting everything down. Yeah. I think that would be a major tragedy. Oh, it would be. Definitely. Dexter then brings the conversation back to where it had been the last time they met. When we had last met, you had pretty much taken us, I think, up to a point where you had received the rifle from Lieutenant Clark. I couldn't swear it was Clark that I took it from, but I believe it was. Now, see, it happened just about that quick. 
I was at the back door at six o'clock like I was supposed to be. How many seconds did it take him to hand me the rifle and get going? That was just a split second. Here again, Jowers being at the back door at six for a mysterious handoff is a ludicrous fabrication to support the notion that he really didn't know what was going down. And Jowers tries to pretend that the handoff was so quick that he really couldn't say for sure that it was his friend Earl Clark, dead for some years now, who had handed him the gun. It was just like that, he said, snapping his fingers. But a little while later, Andy Young asks again, but are you pretty sure that it was Clark who handed you the rifle? This time, Jowers is more certain. I'm sure it was Clark, he says. Of course, Jowers saying so doesn't mean that Lieutenant Earl Clark, an MBD sharpshooter, was out in the bushes behind Jim's grill, just as his say-so didn't mean that Frank Holt was out there. But there is other testimony that we will hear later that says that Earl Clark was out in the yard. And the muddy knees on Jowers' pants says that he was also out there, along with evidence of a third man. But Jowers says that he got a smoking rifle handed to him moments after Dr. King was shot. Dexter King then asked Jowers if he knows of any evidence determining what rifle killed his father. To my knowledge, I don't know of anyone that has scientific evidence of which rifle did actually kill him. I definitely don't believe it was the one the police found. I'll never believe that in a million years. So is it your feeling that James Earl Ray did not? No. He didn't no more kill him than you killed your own dad. No, no, nope. I'd never believe that in a million. Even if he told me, I wouldn't believe it. You could be forgiven for smiling as you listen to how certain Jowers is that neither Ray nor Ray's rifle killed King. If Jowers were out in the bushes when the fatal shot was fired, as it appears he was, of course he's certain. How could he not be? Dexter then has another question. So why was he set up? His own fault. They got him out of jail. They furnished him money. They furnished him with passports. Now they come up with that tale about him setting up a gun deal, but that wasn't true. They may have told him that, you know. So is it possible that he was doing things that appeared to be stalking, but maybe he didn't realize it? He probably didn't even realize it, yeah. I'm sure that's the way it went down. He was doing what he was told to do. So Jowers is certain that Ray was set up and he seems to know more than just a little bit about it. He knows about the phony gun deal, where according to Ray, he was asked to buy a rifle to present to a prospective customer. And Jowers also says that they got Ray out of jail, strongly suggesting that Ray was sprung so he would be available for future service, perhaps, say, as a fall guy. And how Ray escaped from prison has always been a mystery because he needed help and probably high-level permission on the inside. And once out, Ray had the use and protection of several false identities. Jowers refers to them as passports, identities that he could never have come up with by himself. And so now here is Jowers, who on the one hand is saying that he didn't know King was to be killed, but on the other seems to know a lot of inside details about how Ray was moved about and brought to Memphis. So what to make of all this with Lloyd Jowers and Betty Spates? Over the years, Jowers has changed his story many times, like the absurd claim that he didn't know who was to be murdered or who supposedly handed him the gun at the back door to the grill. And of course, at one point, he was clearly chasing the prospect of making money from his story. So after this many lies, is there any reason to believe that some part of Jowers' story is true? The U.S. Department of Justice doesn't think so. In the year 2000 report, they carefully list out all of Jowers' prevarications and conclude that every facet of his story is false. The totality of the evidence, the report concludes, suggests that Jowers fabricated his allegations hoping to promote a sensational account of a conspiracy to murder Dr. Martin Luther King. While acknowledging the many lies told, my own view is that it's a stretch to imagine someone making up an entirely untrue story about being part of a horrific murder in the hope of making some money out of it. Seems like a lot of trouble to invite into your life for an unlikely reward. And of course, the short-lived chase for the movie deal arrived with producer Jack Saltman after the 93 HBO mock trial. But Betty Spates had already told Bill Pepper about Jowers and the rifle before Jowers or Spates 
had ever met Jack Saltman. And attorney Lewis Garrison spent some long hours preparing a proposed immunity deal for Jowers for a crime that he had confessed to Garrison again before he met Jack Saltman. Until his recent death, Lewis Garrison maintained a respected law practice in Memphis. He was horrified by the murder of King, and he would not have abused the legal system with a phony immunity proposal so that his client might make some money on a movie deal. He wasn't that kind of man. The Department of Justice also concluded that Betty Spates was lying, but the motive here is hard to find. They assert that Spates' name does not appear on the list of people in Jim's grill made right after the shooting. But her account of her spat with Chower's wife, the drunk Charlie Stevens being escorted out of the place by her sister Bobby, and Jower's short errands before the murder ring true to me. And I feel the same about her account of Jower's coming through the back door with hair standing on end and the knees of his pants muddy. The DOJ would also refer to a statement that the AG's investigators got in January of 1994 with Betty Spate's signature on it, saying that she had not seen Jowers with a rifle. But a little more than a month after that, Betty signed a statement in the presence of Bill Pepper, where she once again affirmed in detail her original account of seeing Jowers coming through the back door with the gun, saying in part, as read by a voice actor, I will not retract the truthful accounts of the events which I witnessed around 6 p.m. on April 4, 1968, which confirms Mr. Jower's involvement. Based on everything I know, James Earl Ray was not the person who shot Dr. King. Other persons have tried to get me to change my story, saying that if I did so, I would benefit financially. I refuse to do so and continue to refuse. I resent any attempts by the attorney general or his investigators to imply that I am telling lies for money. So the attorney general of the state of Tennessee has a statement signed by Betty Spates saying one thing, and Bill Pepper has one saying something entirely different. Both things can't be true. How to make sense out of this? In my investigation of the murder of Robert Kennedy, I came across recordings that have been hidden for 20 years recordings of dozens of police interviews of witnesses who had inconvenient accounts of what they saw the night of Kennedy's murder, accounts that didn't fit with the official version of the crime. When the investigators made it clear that they wanted a change of story, they often got it, because it is very intimidating to be visited by men in suits who suggest that if you don't change your story, they will have to return with more questions to discover what reason you might have to obstruct a murder investigation by putting forward an untrue story, which would be a very serious crime. They might need to talk to your employer. Have you ever been in trouble with the law? Are you doing drugs? Perhaps you told this story to cover up an affair. For any normal person under this kind of pressure where the men asking the questions have no interest in what you saw, but only in what they want you to say you saw, the easiest thing to do is sign what they want you to sign, and have them leave. And this is Bill Pepper's understanding as to what happened with Betty Spates. Well, Betty Spates obviously was a very important witness to the events that took place at the time of the assassination. And so they had to try to discredit her in every way that they could and to try to get her to uh, collaborate with a false story. So they went to visit her, and they intimidated her. They used some pressure they had on one of her children, one of her sons. They were determined to get her to provide a different story, but that was not the truth. And Betty, of course, told me the truth, actually, tearfully, uh, sometime later. She wanted to tell the truth. She wanted it out there. And she held nothing back. She talked of her relationship with Jowers and what happened on that afternoon exactly the way that she recalled it. I was really very proud of her. In the process of trying to discredit Spates as a witness, the Department of Justice report reveals two other instances where Betty Spates made allegations about the murder of Dr. King. And this might be the most telling evidence of all, because this was back in early 1969, less than a year after King was killed. The first instance 
is short on details, but according to the report, Betty is supposed to have told someone that her boss, presumably Jowers, was in on the murder. This person told the police, and Spates was questioned. She denied having said any such thing. In the second, Spates was arranging bail for her brother when she remarked to two bail bondsmen that she knew who shot Dr. King and that Ray was innocent. The bondsmen notified the AG's office, and two investigators were sent to question Spates. Again, she denied the allegation and said she didn't know a thing about the assassination. In reviewing alleged crimes that happened many years before, like a sexual assault, what a victim or witness said at the time to a third party is regarded as strong evidence. But to the Department of Justice, the fact that Spates twice denied her reported accusations when confronted by law enforcement proved to them that her murder stories were untrue. Of course, one might well see it the other way. One might perceive a woman who saw something so disturbing that she lets it out in an unguarded moment. But when the lawmen show up, she becomes frightened, so she denies she ever said it. And if Jowers came through that door with a smoking rifle, as Spates said he did, and as he said he did, and his lawyer said he did, then you can put away most of what you've been told about the murder of Dr. King. And remember, Betty Spates was never part of the movie scheme, she didn't want to be on TV, and she never at any time asked for a single thing for her story. I want to play again what she said about what Jowers and the movie bunch had wanted her to say. He wanted me to tell the truth about seeing him with a rifle. He just wanted me to change it just a little bit by saying, I saw him standing in the back door and a black man passing him a rifle. And that's not true. And he said, if I didn't say it, I would lose my share of $300,000 plus royalties to the book. And I told him I can't lose nothing I never had. I believe that Betty Spates saw what she said she saw. I don't believe the men in suits. I've seen what they do. Next time on the MLK Tapes. Memphis has an interesting reputation of being the first-degree murder capital of America, and in that context, we're not talking about street crime, but organized hits. I heard some noise, and I was sitting in my kitchen, and I became aware of some shadows out back and some out front, and to make a long story short, two people tried to break in the front, three in the back at the same time. More scientific tests may be conducted on James Earl Ray's rifle to see if it was used to kill Martin Luther King. Tests described Friday were inconclusive, though a buildup of material in the rifle barrel could be to blame. Did you attempt to determine from outside the skin the structure of that bullet under the skin? Yes, sir, I did. And uh, you could take your finger and pinch and feel and roll that bullet under the skin. You're saying what you all saw taken out of Dr. King looked like that? Yes. We felt like we'd found a piece of gold when we found the bullet. Thanks for listening to the MLK Tapes, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. This podcast is not specifically endorsed by the King family or the King estate. The MLK Tapes is written and hosted by Bill Claper. Matt Frederick and Alex Williams are executive producers on behalf of iHeartRadio with producers Trevor Young and Ben Kiebrick. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV, with producers Jamie Albright and Meredith Stedman. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Cover art by Mr. Soul 216 with photography by Artemis Jenkins. Special thanks to Owen Rosenbaum and Grace Royer at UTA, The Nord Group, Beck Media and Marketing, Envision Business Management, and Station 16. If you have questions, you can visit our website, themlktapes.com. We posted photos and videos related to the podcast on our social media accounts. You can check them out at the MLK Tapes. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. 
Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. 